If you grab your Bibles with me and stand, and we're actually going to be looking at a couple different passages this morning. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 1, we're going to read 26 through 27, Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and then looking at Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16, if you can't remember it. It's up there on the, uh, it's up there on the screen. And there's, if you need a Bible, there's a pew Bible in front of you. You can see the page numbers on the screen as well. As Pastor Bruce continues in his series, Identity Theft, we're going to talk about Mugged by the Mirror today. So we're going to read two different passages. We'll start off reading in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and then turn over to Psalm 139, and I'll read verses 13 through 16. Listen as I read our passages. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then flip over to Psalm 139, as I read verses 13 through 16. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. For you form my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. Dear Father, we come, Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for your word. We thank you that you created us in your image. We pray that uh, we would find our, our, our identity in you and through the work that your son did on the cross. And be with us as we, uh, as we learn this morning to have open Bruce as he brings the message that you've laid before him. And uh, just help us learn from you and apply in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are continuing in our series that we began last Sunday on the issue of identity, a series we're simply calling Identity Theft. And as we took notice of last Sunday, the fastest growing crime in America is just that. It's identity theft. But of course, our identity is far more than our bank accounts and our social security numbers. As Christ followers, the real danger is being robbed of our identity in Christ. Even though our identity, as we learned last Sunday, is hidden in Christ, in God, we have a spiritual enemy. His name is the devil. And he wants to rob us of our identity in Christ. In fact, the devil, we saw last Sunday, uses several different lies to rob us of our identity in Christ, which brings us to this key principle that we learned last week, and it's coming up on the screen. It's in your notes again. If you want to fill in the blanks, I encourage you to do that or follow along. But notice this. Here's the lie. A lie believed as truth will affect you as if it were true. A lie we believe is true, even though it is not true, will affect us as if it were true. And here's why. Because we live out who we believe we are. In other words, what we believe about ourselves, our identity, impacts how we live 
each and every day. And the devil is seeking to rob you of your identity in Christ, as a new creation in Christ. And his greatest weapon for that is lies. Last Sunday, we learned that we can be pickpocketed by the past when we believe the lie that says, I am what I have been through. Today, we're going to talk about another lie that the devil uses against us to rob us of our identity in Christ, and that is a lie that leaves us mugged by the mirror. Now, what is this lie? Well, it's, the, it's a lie that we need to beware of that says, I am what I look like. I am what I look like. Well, here's the question. What do you say when you stand in front of the mirror each morning? What do you see? What do you think? And more importantly, what do you believe when you're standing in front of the mirror and you're seeing your reflection? Do you believe the lie that says, I am what I look like? Now, let's be honest here. We all care about what we look like to some level or degree. We all do. In fact, I would, I would suggest we all wrestle with either insecurity or vanity when it comes to our appearance. In fact, we, we live in a culture that is obsessed with beauty and body. Research shows that somewhere between 80 to 90% of women and over 40% of men are dissatisfied with their bodies. And among adolescent boys, nearly 18% are highly concerned about their weight and physique. According to the American Society of Plastic Surgeons, there are over 17 million surgical and minimally evasive cosmetic procedures performed in the United States last year. Last year alone, $15.4 billion was spent on surgical and non-surgical cosmetic procedures just in our country. Do you know what the top five of them were? The top five surgical procedures were breast augmentations, liposuction, nose reshaping, eyelid surgeries, and facelifts. The average age for onset of an eating disorder is 12 to 14 years old. And in the United States alone, 20 million women suffer from a clinically significant eating disorder at some time in their life. Now, these statistics are alarming for two different reasons. The first is just a health-related reason. Many women, and even men, are starving themselves and perhaps even mutilating their bodies to conform to a particular standard of beauty that our culture is obsessed with. And then a second cause for alarm is simply for a spiritual reason. When we then, as Christ followers, when we buy into this lie, when we are consumed with our own bodies and beauty, it robs us of our identity in Christ, and I would suggest it even inhibits our worship of Christ. Sharon Miller writes in an article on ChristianityToday.com, she says, and I quote, Countless women prepare for worship on Sunday morning, not by quieting their hearts and minds before the Lord, but by putting on makeup, curling their hair, and squeezing into a pair of Spanix. These women then walk into the church distracted and insecure, comparing themselves to the women around them and wondering if they measure up. Focusing on God is a battle. 
Of course, worship is not just a Sunday morning affair, and neither is the battle over body image. Every time a woman turns on the television, strolls past a magazine aisle, watches the numbers rise on the scale, or spots the first gray hair, the battle wages on. I cannot speak to the experience of men, but studies show that men fight this battle too. Images of six-pack abs, athletic builds, trendy clothes, and perfectly styled hair are all over the media. You say, what does all this mean? What's the big deal? It means we're getting mugged by the mirror. That's what it means. We're buying a lie that equates looking a certain way with being happy, with feeling significant, with being accepted, but this lie also keeps us distracted and even defeated as Christ followers. In other words, our obsession with beauty and body robs us of our identity in Christ. And for this reason, we need to look in a different mirror. The mirror of God's Word. And we need to embrace His truth regarding beauty and body. So let's do that. We have many passages of Scripture that we're going to be looking at. I've tried to put some of them in your notes. Others are not. I encourage you to have your Bibles open. Turn there when I reference them. But we're going to look specifically at five truths, God's truth, regarding beauty and body. And the first truth is this. I am wonderfully made in the image of God. In fact, let's say that together using the pronoun I. On the count of three. One, two, three. I am wonderfully made in the image of God. Do you realize the whole image thing started with God when he created us in his own image? Genesis 1, 27 says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so our most fundamental identity is that we are God's image bearers. All of creation reflects something of God. But understand, we alone as human beings, we bear the image of God. And so when you look in the mirror, remember that you are seeing a reflection of God's image. That is your primary identity. And get this, you are not carelessly made. You are not haphazardly made. You are not sloppily made. You are fearfully and wonderfully made by God in his image. What David says to us in Psalm 139 about being wonderfully made by God is not just true of David, it is also true of you. And so listen to his words again. For you created, God, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And so I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Do you believe that? And if you do, does it motivate you to praise God as your creator? Your works, Lord, are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. And so there is nothing wrong with being gifted by God or being, quote, gorgeous, if I can say that. 
But the most beautiful thing about who you are is not ultimately a statement about you. It is a reflection of the very image of God. You read a little further in Genesis, and you get this idea, this sense of the healthy self-image Adam and Eve enjoyed in the Garden of Eden. You drop down to Genesis 2, verse 25, and it says, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. That's an amazing statement. They were walking with God. They were walking with each other. They were made in God's image. They were his image bearers, and they seemed perfectly comfortable with the beautiful bodies that they were given. But the story begins to shift in Genesis 3. Enter Satan, disguised as a serpent, who uses lies to do what? To rob Adam and Eve of their identity as God's image bearers. Adam and Eve bought into Satan's lies and they sought to live autonomously apart from God. And in so doing, they found themselves naked and afraid. You thought that TV show was original in their name. No. The first naked and afraid couple is Adam and Eve. When God came calling, Adam answered in Genesis chapter 3, verse 10, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. The first image bearers are now hiding from God in shame, and what are they doing? They're trying to cover up their bodies. But understand, the root of their shame, and this is where our culture misses it, the root of their shame lies in their separation from God, not in their bodies. In other words, this means human shame lies in our autonomy from God, not in our anatomy. And ever since that day, we've been trying to cover up our inner shame with our outward appearance. We go through life looking at a distorted image caused by sin and striving to create another image for ourselves. And the trouble is, the substitute image pulls us further and further away from God and his gospel in Jesus Christ, which we so desperately need, for only the gospel can cover our shame. Only the gospel can restore our identity as God's image bearers. Now, when I embrace that gospel, when I embrace my identity in Christ through the gospel, I don't have to hide behind the right kind of genes or shades. I am wonderfully made by a God who loves me. I don't have to fret about looking, quote, just right in order to be accepted by peers. I am already accepted by God as his daughter or his son. I am his redeemed child. That's the first truth we need to embrace. It's the first truth we need to wrap our arms around and ask God each and every day, God, help me to believe this truth about myself. It's what you say about me. So help me to look into the mirror of your word instead of being mugged by the mirror that I only see a reflection of. 
The second truth regarding beauty and body is my body is important. And what I do with it matters. Do you realize God has a lot to say about the importance of the body he gave you? It is talked about throughout the Bible, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul tells us why our bodies are important and why what I do with it matters. Looking, look what Paul writes. I think I have this in your notes. Look what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18 through 20. He states, it's a command, flee sexual immorality. And now he tells us why. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. He goes on in verse 19. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. Now, out of these verses come three reasons why my body is important and why what I do with it matters. And the first reason Paul states here is my body belongs to God, not me. I don't own my body. God does. It's his property, not mine. God created my body, and he expects me to use it in a way that he intended for it to be used. Now, we naturally rebel against this whole idea. In fact, you can trace it all the way back to the Garden of Eden, just like Adam and Eve. We rebel against. Why? Because we want to live autonomously apart from God. We want to be our own gods. We want to be the boss. And we want to be in control of my body, we think. And so our culture says, my body is mine to do whatever I want to do with it. But God says, he reminds us, no, you're wrong. It's not your body because you didn't create it. I made it and I loaned it to you to live in a way while I put you here on earth, and I expect you to take care of it. I expect you to use it in a way that I intended for it to be used. And so the first reason Paul states that why my body is important is because my body belongs to my creator. It belongs to God, not me. But he gives us another reason why, and that is my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. At the moment of your salvation, do you realize God put his spirit inside of you as a guarantee of your salvation? And because God's spirit lives inside of you, your body becomes a, quote, temple of God. In other words, a dwelling place for God's spirit. Now, that is just mind-boggling. It's amazing. That as a Christ follower, one who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, at that moment, God's Spirit, somehow, someway, God's Spirit indwells you, and now your body, this shell, this flesh and blood here, it is the temple, it's a dwelling place for the very Spirit of God. Whoa. And once you know that the body you live in actually serves now as a temple for the Holy Spirit, Hopefully that does something for you as a Christ follower. Hopefully that motivates you to take care of it and to declare something like, man, I'm not going to trash God's temple anymore. 
God, you gave me this body, and you live in it, so I'm going to treat it and treat it well. I'm going to feed it right. I'm going to give it the rest it needs, not so I can bring attention or glory to myself, but so I can honor the one who lives inside of me. Because whatever I do with my body is what I'm doing with the Holy Spirit. And so remember, your body is a temple. It's a dwelling place for the very Spirit of God. That's why it's important. And that's why it matters what you do with your body. There's a third reason, though. Paul says, my body is to be used to glorify God. Paul, follow Paul's logic here. Because he has a line of thought that he's taken us through. There is a thread here. Paul starts off and he says, your body belongs to God. And now it is a temple of God's Spirit. Therefore, glorify God with your body. In other words, when we dress in, or carry ourselves in a way that invites... Listen, listen to me. Pay attention here. When we dress in a way or when we present our bodies in a way, when we carry ourselves in a way that invites others to worship us, to worship our bodies, we are robbing God of the very worship that is due to him alone. This is why. This is Paul's concluding argument here. This is why what I do with my body matters. My body was blood-bought by Jesus Christ with his death on the cross. And so use your body to glorify God, the one who created it, the one who owns it, the one who redeemed it. And get this, Paul later goes on, he says, the one who will resurrect your body. And thankfully, that new body, it will be new, it will be transformed, it will be a resurrected body. So my body is important, and what I do with it matters. This brings us to a third truth regarding beauty and body. Physical training is good, but godliness is better. And in your notes, you'll notice a typo there. It's not good, goodliness, it should be godliness. So just cross out one of those extra O's and you'll be good to go. Now, we just learned that our bodies are important. However, it needs to be balanced because of our culture's obsession with beauty and body. And so that's exactly what we have here in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul is making the case that we should train ourselves for godliness by comparing the value of physical training to spiritual training. Notice what he writes in verse, chapter 4, verse 8 of 1 Timothy. He says, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Now please understand, Paul's point is not that physical training is worthless. That's not what he's saying here. Rather, he's saying that if athletes work hard to get in shape and to even stay in shape, then we as Christ followers, we ought to have the same mindset when it comes to training for godliness. In other words, Paul's he's doing a comparison here and a contrast. Our physical bodies are important. We just saw that. 
But he's also reminding us, and you, we learn this in 1 Corinthians, that our bodies are also decaying and dying, are they not? Therefore, we should now focus on more of what? We should focus on more than just our bodies. So our culture focuses on only what? Our bodies. Our culture is obsessed with bodies and beauty. As Christ followers, yes, we understand this body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's important. I need to take care of it. But it doesn't stop there. Paul's saying we have a bigger focus. We focus on something more. We have a higher priority. We should focus more on growing in godliness. And then Paul tells us why. Because it has more value now in this life and especially in the life to come. It's more precious to God. And so the challenge is not to neglect our bodies, but also to let it and not but also not let it to become an all-consuming focus in our lives. Because we can become obsessed with our bodies, just like our culture. And Paul's saying, no, you want to obsess about something, obsess about growing in godliness. Because that has value, more value, for today and for eternity. Now, with so much emphasis on beauty and body in our culture, do we even know what true beauty is? Parents, I would, I would ask you this. If you were to try to explain to your kids, whether they're in grade school or even teenagers, how would you define and explain to them, son, daughter, here's what true beauty is? Where would you point them? Where would you lead to them? What would you say to them? Do we understand as Christ, what is true beauty? From God's perspective, we understand what the world says about it, what our culture says about it. We're immersed in it. So what is true beauty? Number four, true beauty is the inner beauty of the heart. Now, it is one thing to look beautiful. It's quite another to be beautiful. You ever met someone who struck you as extremely attractive only to change your mind once you got to know him or her a little bit? If so, then you can relate to the waitress played by Helen Hunt in the movie As Good As It Gets when she says to the grumpy customer played by Jack Nicholson, you know, when you first came in here, I thought you were handsome, but then you opened your mouth. You see, beauty is an inside-out kind of thing. At least that's the way God sees it. Consider what Paul had to say, or what God had to say, when he chose a king for the nation of Israel and instructed the prophet Samuel what to look for in the resume. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, God says, he's telling Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. What do the people look at? What does our culture look at? Physical beauty, bodies. God says people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, I'm old enough to remember watching the old TV show Sanford and Sons as a kid. Anybody remember that show? All right, there's a few of you old folks here. And you may remember Fred has this sister-in-law whom he didn't like much named Aunt Esther. She was a hateful, mean, nasty kind of person. 
And Fred used to tell her, beauty is skin deep, ugly goes all the way to the bone. Now, biblically, he wasn't too far off. Because you go to the Old Testament, and it includes the story of another Esther, one who was beautiful, though, from the outside in all the way to the heart. We know her as Queen Esther. In Esther chapter 2, verse 7, it says this about her. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Now, what's interesting is that this is the only verse in all of the book of Esther that mentions her physical beauty, which did open a door for God to use her for his purposes. However, there are ten chapters that talk about her inner beauty. Courage, leadership, wisdom, and compassion all to explain how God used her inner beauty to save the Jewish race from genocide. You contrast that with another physically beautiful person in the Old Testament, a guy named Absalom. You ever heard of him? Absalom was one of King David's sons. And he is described this way in 2 Samuel 14, 25. No man in all Israel was as handsome and highly praised as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the top of his head, he did not have a single flaw. No blemish, no zit, acne problems. His face was perfect. No flaws about him. No doubt Absalom could have landed on the cover of People's Magazine's annual Sexiest Man Alive issue, right? On the inside, though, was a completely different story. There was nothing beautiful about this guy. He was arrogant, he was prideful, and he was rebellious. He betrayed his own dad to steal the throne, and he died a horrific death as a result. Absalom may have been physically beautiful, but he was ugly where it counted most, in the heart. Folks, listen to me. Teens, look here. Don't get mugged by the mirror. True beauty is the inner beauty of the heart. Look how that's described in 1 Peter 3, 3 through 5. Peter's writing here and he says, Don't let your beauty consist of outward things, like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way. Now, hear me, please. Peter is not saying that you should ignore your appearance, your outward appearance. He's not saying ignore it. He's not saying you shouldn't style your hair. He's not saying you shouldn't wear clothes. He's not saying you shouldn't wear jewelry. Rather, Peter wants us to understand that there's a beauty that goes far beneath hairstyle, jewelry, or makeup. True beauty is what he's emphasizing, and true beauty is the inner beauty of the heart. 
This view of beauty, though, runs counter to the culture we live in. But God is telling us that true beauty is not found in outward adornment, but in our heart. And so the point is not just about being pretty on the inside. Listen, God is offering us something much greater than that. He is offering us an imperishable beauty while we live in perishable bodies. God highlights the real beauty of godliness that is expressed in our character and in our conduct. And he says that's what matters. That's true beauty. It starts on the inside and it's expressed on the outside through your character and your conduct. He's talking about a beauty that comes from who you are in Christ, not just what you look like in front of the mirror. So here's a little fashion tip from God. Here's a fashion guideline, rule, if you will. It's not trendy, but it is timeless. It's found in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. It says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive, and so the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Now, perhaps we could reinforce God's truth here a little bit on beauty by occasionally encouraging one another in this way. Hey, you know what? That humility looks pretty good on you. Or, whoa, man, you look hot in that compassion. Man, you're looking fine in that forgiveness. Or, wow, that gentleness fits you so well. Now, I realize no one's really going to say any of that stuff. But hopefully you get the point. True beauty is the inner beauty of the heart expressed in one's character and conduct. Now, allow me to offer God's wisdom to, in particular, women and men. Notice this, women, invest more in the imperishable beauty of godliness, which is precious to who? God. And so ladies, teen girls, look at me. You've got to decide what's more valuable to do. Whose opinion counts more? Does God's opinion count more, or do I hold in higher value what some guy thinks? Peter's reminding us here that the imperishable beauty of godliness is precious in God's sight. Proverbs 31.30 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Now why does Solomon even need to say that? Because physical beauty and charm are naturally appealing, right? But they're fading and fading fast. And so true and lasting beauty is a woman who fears the Lord. That's a woman who is to be praised. And guys, teen guys, single men, that's a woman who is to be pursued as a wife. Jasmine Holmes, who was a wife, mom, and speaker, writes, and I quote, In its proper place, makeup can be a beautiful and faith-filled form of self-expression. 
God's concern for us reaches past our outward appearance and into our hearts. And if we are his children, those hearts are being transformed by and conformed to Christ. This is where our confidence should lie, not in our outward adornment or lack thereof, not in the perfect beat face, but in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Whether you adorn yourself with a beautiful braid, a brand new dress, or a sweet pair of earrings, or the newest Sephora cosmetics release, Ultimately, the most important beauty begins within, she writes, and she's nailed it. John Paper writes, women, you are a person. You're not a person to be gawked at. He goes on to write in the same article, once you have that straight, then the body will fall into line with appropriate clothing and appropriate makeup and appropriate hair and everything else. It's not your God anymore. It's no longer what you live for. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. And then Peter offers us a reason why. A reason for pursuing this kind of beauty which is precious to God in 3.5. He says in verse 5, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. Holy women who hoped in God. That is the key. Women, young ladies. That should cause us to step back and stop and ask, what am I hoping in? What am I putting my hope in? Women, do you hope in men around you liking what they see? Or do you simply hope in God? Married women, do you hope in your husband's approval or do you hope in God's approval? Teen girls, do you hope in guys checking you out? Or do you simply hope that God sees your heart and that it's precious to Him? Putting your hope in God, it means getting your identity from God. You're getting your acceptance and approval from God. You're getting your joy and purpose in life from God. Are you hoping in God? Men, there's a word of wisdom for us. And that is, don't be seduced by the fleeting beauty of the immoral woman, which leads to destruction. Guys, now more than ever, we need God's wisdom when it comes to guarding our eyes, guarding our hearts from the fleeting beauty of the immoral, oftentimes called the forbidden woman. Proverbs chapter 2, verses 16 through 19. Look at the wisdom of God here. It says, wisdom will save you also from the adulterous woman or forbidden woman or immoral woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. Surely her house leads down to death and her path to the spirits of the dead. None who go to her return or attain the path of life. Gentlemen, take note. Do you need more? Flip over to Proverbs 5, 3 through 6. It says, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not even know it. 
There's wisdom here. There's safety in this wisdom. But our culture says, no, no, no. And if you want a full picture of all the temptations of the immoral woman and the consequences of not avoiding her, I challenge you men, go home this afternoon and read all of Proverbs chapter 7. 21 verses. It won't take you any time at all. In fact, for the next 30 days, we ought to read it once a day. God's wisdom says we should be cultivating hearts that are more attractive to the imperishable beauty of godliness than anything else. Marshall Seagal, who writes for DesiringGod.com or .org, he writes in an article, guys, listen to what he says. Men, listen up. He says it's easy to notice physical features of Almost any man in the world is capable of that. But discipline yourself to notice and appreciate true beauty, which is not flaunted, but buried in a woman's heart and expressed in things like patience, kindness, and selflessness. Say a prayer of thanks for what you see in women like that. Turn the world's crude locker room conversations on their head by commending true and lasting beauty with humility and respect. Learn the vanity of physical beauty by itself and the lies lacing flirtatious charm and flattery and train your heart and mind to praise and desire the woman whose heart is hot for God. Nailed it. Men, that's what we praise. That's what we should seek after. That's what we should affirm. And parents, that's what we should lift up as true beauty for our kids and our teenagers. The last truth regarding beauty and body is to embrace, number five, that God designed your, quote, looks for his purpose. Look what the Bible says about two sisters in Genesis 29, 17. Notice this. It says, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Here's what Heather Creekmore said about this verse. I quote, I used to believe that Genesis 29, 17 was the meanest verse in the whole Bible. How could God tell us that Rachel beamed with physical beauty while Leah lacked great eyes? Isn't that a bit harsh? Where's the follow-up verse that clarifies it's what's on the inside that counts? Where's the asterisk that leads to the footnote explanation of how beauty is in the eye of the beholder accompanied by a list of her nicer physical features? But there's no disclaimers, no excuses. The Bible just goes right out and says it. Rachel was hot and Leah was not. Do you ever think Leah just looked up at the sky and screamed at God? This isn't fair. Why didn't you make me more beautiful like my sister Rachel? And I think God's answer would have been something like, physical beauty won't save you, Leah. And the truth of the matter is, physical beauty couldn't save Rachel either. The story of these two sisters, I wish we had more time to delve into it because it's a it's a wild story. Who are married to the same man and trapped in the continuation of a sibling rivalry that had likely started well before the wedding days. But nonetheless, their story shows us 
to truth, God's truth, about our, quote, looks. And the first truth is this. God did not make every person equally beautiful physically. There's no doubt the Bible makes a distinction here between Leah and Rachel's looks so that we can fully grasp the tension in their relationship. The Bible is clear that Rachel was physically more attractive than her sister Leah. And God doesn't apologize for that. God doesn't make excuses for that. He doesn't add an extra verse about Leah having such a great personality to make up for it. Remember, both Leah and Rachel were wonderfully made in God's image. Rachel also shows us, you read the story, that more beauty, ladies listen to me, more beauty doesn't mean fewer problems. Rachel's status as, quote, gorgeous is recorded in God's word, and yet Rachel struggled big time in her life. She thought being married to the man of her dreams would make her happy. And it didn't last. She was miserable. Physical beauty never equates to fewer difficulties. Being physically beautiful may get you a wedding ring like it did Rachel, but it doesn't guarantee you a pain-free marriage, an easy family, or a stress-free life. Read her story. You'll find out. The second truth we learn here is God did gift you with all the looks you need to fulfill his purpose, though. Yes, Leah was the less-than-hot sister of Rachel. But the truth is, Leah wasn't cursed by God with her, quote, weak eyes. She wasn't cursed with her looks. Rather, God used her, weak eyes and all, to accomplish his purpose in her life. Sure, Leah married Jacob only because her father-in-law tricked her sister's would-be groom. And yet what happens? Leah bears Jacob many, many sons, and one of whom is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. And so God uses the, quote, uglier sister to establish a home for the twelve tribes of Israel, one of whom was Judah, the forefather of the very Messiah that was to come. And when Leah names Judah, she says this, her own words in Genesis 29, 35, Now I will praise God. Now I will praise the Lord. You know, you get, that's, that's a turning point in her life. Her heart is radically changed. It's radically different from before. Before, she fought and fought for her husband's attention and affection and came up empty with it. But now she has finally realized that fulfilling God's purpose is more satisfying than any attention that any man can give her. God is sovereign, and he uses whom he wants, when he wants, according to his purposes. Leah, yes, was born with, quote, weak eyes to accomplish God's as Heather Creekmore goes on to write, isn't it possible that some of, are given great physical beauty as a part of God's plan for their lives and others are not, and that doesn't matter? 
Why is it not okay that physical beauty be just another attribute that doesn't carry the weight of ultimate importance in our lives? Just like some are blessed financially or others are given great musical talent or administrative gifts. Maybe God doesn't apologize to us for not making Leah as beautiful as Rachel because it doesn't really matter what she looks like. He still knows how he will use her to accomplish his purpose and that alone will bring great fulfillment. So whether you're a woman here this morning or you're a man, trust God that he designed your looks on purpose to fulfill his purpose. He has gifted you with all the looks you need to do what he wants you to do. But I get it. In a culture that is obsessed with beauty and body, it's easy to be mugged by the mirror. We can quickly attach our identity to what we look like when we stand in front of that mirror. But building your identity in how you look will never ultimately satisfy you because it will never be good enough and you will continue to be mugged day after day by that mirror. We need to look in a different mirror. We need to look in the mirror of God's Word. And we need to let His truth about beauty and body set us free from the lie that says, I am what I look like. And so my hope and prayer is that by God's truth and His grace, you will reclaim your identity in Christ. Notice, your ultimate identity does not come from what you look like but from whom you look to, Jesus Christ. And in looking to Jesus, you become like Him. And there's nothing more beautiful than Jesus. And so pursue Him. That is your identity. With your heads bowed. And as we come to our response time, they're just going to pray, play a course. And as they do, I pray that God has moved in your heart and perhaps even convicted you of places in your life where if you are honest with God, you would have to say, I have been obsessed. I have allowed the culture to shape and impact my view of what I am because of how I look. God, forgive me. And allow your word to reshape me. Allow your truth to form my opinion because it's your opinion. It's your truth. As they play.